Our second lesson comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When the employees of Dunder Mifflin in the U.S. series of The Office find out that the Scranton branch is closing, the scene in The Office is pretty typical of what you might expect to find. Stanley, who is near retirement, is excited about the possibility of getting severance. He is packing up his belongings, putting them in a box, ready to head home. Phyllis is a bit more despondent. I think she has her feet up on her desk and she's knitting because who cares about the work that day. Uh, Ryan, who has just gotten a brand new set of business cards, is despondently flicking them into a trash can. Creed is taking advantage of the situation. He's taking pictures of all the computers and technology and chairs, things he might sell on eBay to make a profit off of this bad news. Perhaps this is something of the scene that Timothy describes when he comes to Paul and he tells Paul about what's going on in Thessalonica. Paul is in Corinth, which is just south of Thessalonica, a a, a day or two's journey uh, down the coast. Paul is in Corinth. He has been in Thessalonica not that long ago, and Timothy is bringing him another report on how things are going. And for the most part, things are going well for this church. They're, they're facing some persecution, but they're doing it with, with faith and courage. They're figuring out what it means to live into the community of Christ. Um, but there are a few among them who have heard that there's going to be some sort of second coming when Jesus comes back. And we can't be sure if they are Stanley's focused on retirement and the next life and so, well, I'm packing things up, I'm ready to go. Or if they're creed sort of, um, you know, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we're going to die anyways. Or maybe they're despondent sort of Eeyore characters who think, well, you know, I guess things are out of our hands. What's the point in living anyways? We're we're not exactly sure what the situation is. But I, I start with the image of the office partly because I want to make the point that this is not a text about hunger. No work, no food has been usurped and taken to be the mantra of a baptized evangelical form of rugged individualism, self-determination. The Lord helps those who help themselves. This line of thinking has crept into Christian circles and has been used to justify those who want to withhold assistance from the poor. To defend the position of slashing social welfare as biblical. Paul said it, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. And I think Paul would be grieved 
to hear this line from Thessalonians ripped from its passage and applied to something like policy on who gets food. On our obligation to the hunger, Jesus has spoken the authoritative word. I was hungry and you fed me. Whenever you did this for the least of these, you did it unto me. This is not a passage about hunger. Thessalonians is, is kind of cool because First Thessalonians is the oldest literature we have in the New Testament. It's older than any of the Gospels, any of the other letters. It's the first thing that Paul writes that we have. And it's, um, it is, it's like no one questions whether Paul wrote it. And Second Thessalonians likely comes right on the heels of it. So this is some of the first literature that we have about what's going on in the early church. And one of the questions that was going on in the early church is what is the deal with Jesus coming back again? Jesus had, um, had, had, had been risen and then there's the story of Jesus' ascension. Jesus ascends into heaven. The assumption is what goes up must come down. And so we're waiting on pins and needles for Jesus to come back again and make all things right. And so the confusion, the idleness that's, that's being talked about in this passage, probably people who are trying to, um, who, who are fixating on this idea and not living into what it means to be a community that feels like family. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Paul addresses this Uh, He addresses this already, and he says, We urge you, beloved, to admonish idlers. The same word that he uses in 2 Thessalonians. Um, Admonish idlers. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. So Paul addresses this issue of 1 Thessalonians. It appears to have even become a bigger issue, which is why it gets addressed again in 2 Thessalonians. And this time, Paul gives the command to create some space between the community and these people, which is a pretty serious, like that's a fairly serious judgment for Paul to, 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 to offer the church. Create some space between these people. Um, and, and Paul also uses this funny little play on words um, when he's talking about these people. And it's, this, you know, it's very similar to our phrase, um, you know, working hard or hardly working. Um, the, the, the phrase in Greek for work is ergazomenos. And, and so he says, these people are not ergazomenos. They're not workers. These people are uh, peri-ergazomenos. Peri means around. Um, these people are figuring ways around their work. Um, and, and the connotation is, is not simply that they're lazy or that they have the vice of sloth. It's that they are, um, is some, uh, did our translation say busybodies? Yeah, mere busybodies. So um, it's not simply what they're not doing, but it's also what they're doing in the midst of the community. Some sort of fixation. I imagine them whispering into people's ears about what they think about Jesus' second coming and, well, stop doing your work and stop living the way you're living and why are you doing this and why are you doing that? Jesus is going to come back anyways. It doesn't matter. I'm not sure what they're whispering, but they're doing something actively that's disruptive to the community. Um, I think, I think it's really helpful uh, to understand why this is so serious to Paul, why he, he, he talks about it in both letters. I think it's helpful to hear how this church was planted um, in order to understand why Paul's upset. And fortunately for us, we have the account of how this church was planted in Acts chapter 17. Um, this is a... This is, this is, uh, it's a, this is a sick passage, it's like, as far as passages go. Um, Uh, listen to this from Acts 17. This is the story of how this church was planted. Um, After Paul and Silas had passed through 
Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days argued with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah, Jesus, to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you. Uh, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But many of the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. Shout out. Attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, These people have been turning the world upside down. These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. The people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after they had taken bail from Jason and the others, they let them go. That's the passage from Acts 17, where the economy of Thessalonica is under threat by the gospel of Jesus. The church at Thessalonica is started because devout Greeks, men like Jason presumably, find the life of Christ that Paul talks about to be so compelling that they are willing to call Jesus king. And Luke tells us not a few of the leading women heard the story of Jesus and were convinced that they too were a part of that story. And the reign of Jesus threatened the status quo so much that there was shouting in the square. Paul wants the Thessalonians to be centered around Christ and the work of Christ which calls the poor blessed and touches the untouchable. The story of Jesus calls the Greek and the Jew together as one people. When the gospel is heard in Thessalonica, it calls forth an odd group of people into a new kind of community. And the very existence of that unlikely community was so threatening that the ruling class turned on the sirens and sent out the dogs in search of them. Paul tells the Thessalonians, not to spend too much time with people trying to stir up controversies, stoking fires that shouldn't be fires, fixating on flights of fancy about things beyond their knowledge. Because there's the work of turning the world upside down to be done. Uh, Do you remember a few years ago when Starbucks removed their Christmas imagery from their cup? I don't know if that was a big deal on my social media. Maybe not on yours. I don't know how big of a story it became. But the story was that Starbucks uh, had made the brazen move of removing like Christmas trees and presents and stars from their uh, Christmas cups. And now they were just holiday cups and they were just red. And there was a firestorm. And a lot of people were very, very upset about this. This was another one of, of, of the items in the culture war and um, Christians should boycott Starbucks because their cups were red and not more Christmassy. And that was, it was, it was I, mean, I mean, yeah. Among a, a group of Christians, this was a really big deal. 
and a lot of ink was spent on it. And I kept feeling like, why, why, why are we spending so much time talking about this? When there's the work of turning the world upside down, the work of proclaiming that the emperor is not the true king, nobody has time for Starbucks cups. When you're engaged in the work of loving a neighbor who has given you plenty of reason to hate them, when there's the work of going to work and handling the anxiety of an email full of anger that jumps out of your inbox like a firecracker, when there's the real work of imitating the life of Christ, And we cannot spend our time, our life together, worried about things that don't matter. When there are so many people who matter, so many things that do matter. The work of turning the world upside down, we learn in Thessalonians, is not done through extravagant, miraculous acts. It is done through tent making. Paul was a tent maker. That was his trade. Whenever he went to a new city, he would pick up the trade of making tents during the day. Notice he preaches in the synagogue uh, on, on the Sabbath, three consecutive Sabbaths, which means that, you know, on, on Saturday he would go and, and teach. And the, the rest of the week, uh, he, would, he would work, presumably. He would, he would be a tent maker. That was his trade. And when he tells the Thessalonians to imitate him, he is partly saying, do the daily ordinary stuff just like I did. The work of the church is not limited to the synagogue or the church building. It is done through cloth dyeing, through sweeping, mopping, pruning the plants, scheduling the meetings. There is dignity to all work, and there is a way of doing it that proclaims that Jesus is king and not the emperor. The work of Christ is carried out through our work. And I use work here broadly. Whatever you're doing during your week is your work whether it's paid or not, whether it is esteemed in this life or not, whether you think it's work or not. Perhaps the busybody for us, the one who works around, is not a person in our community. It's not. No one in our community plays that role. Perhaps the the busybody is the voice that we listen to that distracts us from the work that Christ has laid before us, the voice that tells us that our work is not valuable, that it is not impacting anyone. Your work is not spiritual and therefore it doesn't really matter. Your work really matters. Your parenting really matters. The relationships that you tend during the week really matter. Your part-time work as a yoga instructor really matters. Your full-time work as an attorney or at a coffee shop, what you do really matters probably far more than you will ever know. It really matters what you do and how you do it. And the voice that tells us that the little things we do are insignificant, that is the busybody that we must distance ourselves from in order to keep the work of Christ at the center of our lives. If a community imitated your life, what would that community look like? It's good terrifying question. If a community imitated your life, what would that community look like? Paul commands the Thessalonians to imitate him. And Timothy and, and, and Silvanus, those who, those who were in Thessalonica with them. The apostles who have spent time with them. Part of why Paul says this, and he says this several times in the New Testament, part of why he says this is because there's not much else to go by. This is the first thing that he's written. 
There aren't other letters to read. There aren't, the Gospels aren't written. They can't look up what Jesus did. They can remember what Paul told them about the life of Jesus, but they can't look back on any text. There are no examples, no tracks to go by. The community of faith has to rely on their lived witness. People don't Google the church or read their materials or check out the ads or the websites. They witness the life of a community. They see how Paul and Timothy and Silvanus go about their lives, their work. And this is why it is so important to Paul that nothing distracts the community from centering themselves on the life and work of Christ. There is a world to flip upside down. And the city of Thessalonica will only know about the reign of Jesus. The poor will only know there is hope. The devout Greeks will only know there is true wisdom. The wealthy will only be able to find true rest if there is a community of unlikely people doing the work of Christ in their midst. That's the only way. And that is still the truest and most powerful witness in the world today. Come up with all sorts of other strategies and plans, but nothing is more powerful than a group of unlikely, ordinary people, undistracted, imitating Christ, in ordinary ways. So may we live a life worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus. The calling to live a life worth imitating. To bear witness to a disruptive rule that cares for the poor, that sees all people, and there's no time to care what Starbucks is printing on their cups. Turning the world upside down because there is another king and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have called us to be an unlikely community of people bearing witness to your kingdom. I pray that by the way we treat each other, pray that by by the way we treat those that we work with, those that we run into on the street, in restaurants and coffee shops, those in the classrooms in which we teach, pray that through us that they would know that they are loved by a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son for it. Pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.